you want to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Acts, or you can turn, click, swipe, tap, whatever you do to make progress in a Bible. Um, we are in a series on the book of Acts. It'll probably take us through the end of the school year, uh, in, in the spring, would be my, my guess. Um, we've only got it mapped out through the end of this year so far. And uh, we, we are just kind of getting going, but we're in the second chapter of Acts this morning. So if you want to turn there with me, and we'll, we'll read this, and then we'll dig in. Verses 1 through 40 this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all seated in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing him speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a, test, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I, can, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, about 3,000 souls. So in the chapter 1 of the book of Acts, among other things, we saw that Jesus was going to build a people for himself. What would that people be like? What do people think of the people of Jesus today? That is, what people would think about his people today, what Jesus had in mind back then. Imagine your coworker or your neighbor or your family member. What if they asked you, what is it that makes Christians special? I, I know that what you believe, you believe to be true, but what difference does it make? What would you say? I think there's many ways you could answer that question. In fact, I think the book of Acts gives us many complementary answers to that question. But in this passage, there's an answer that I think is particularly particularly relevant to the uh, interaction between Christians and non-Christians. In Acts chapter 2, 1 through 40, Jesus begins to build his new people. And those people are marked by power, by purpose, and by persuasion. On May 23rd, A.D. 33, Jerusalem was a packed house. It was still a packed house. It was Shabuot, the Feast of Weeks. It's one of three festivals each year during which faithful Jews were supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for worship. It was a festival that took place 50 days after the beginning of Passover. Seven weeks, seven days, seven sevens of days plus one. And so because of this 50, we have come to call the day Pentecost, uh, following its Greek name. Historically, Shavuot was a harvest festival. So it was an opportunity to give thanks to God for his great provision. Think of our Thanksgiving holiday in the United States, which before it was just about eating tons of food. It was a festival that took place at the end of the harvest season. And those are common throughout cultures of the world. But this Jewish holiday also was associated with the giving of the law. 
Many Jews believed, and it's still the traditional interpretation in Orthodox Judaism, that Moses received the Ten Commandments from God on that day, a gift of God's word for God's people. So it made sense that this group of Jesus' disciples would be in Jerusalem at this time. But of course, we know there's another reason that they were there. Jesus had told them, we saw this in Acts 1, to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. So Jesus was most likely resurrected, the best, most likely date, on April 5th, A.D. 33. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And so that would put his ascension to heaven around May 14th. And so it's been about nine days since then. Now, other faithful Jews were in town for the festival as well. And perhaps some of them had had returned. They had gone home from Passover, and they've come back. And some of them have stayed through because they had the means and the resources to take an extended vacation. And why come back in seven weeks when travel was... You couldn't just hop a train or a plane back then. It's hard to make two long trips back to back. So that's kind of the background That's the setting of our passage here when when Luke writes in that first verse that it was the day of Pentecost. And then Luke writes, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting in divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In the Old Testament, wind is a picture of God's spirit. In fact, the word here is a is related to the word for spirit in Greek. And fire in the Old Testament is often an indication of God's presence with his people. Think about Moses at the burning bush. So God's presence is being made known to them, and then each one of them receives a measure of God's presence as these tongues of fire seem to rest on each member of this gathering of roughly 120 disciples individually. And at this point, Luke says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You might be asking, what does that mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And that's a a great question. I think that we put a lot of stock in phrases like this that aren't really based on what the Bible actually has to say. I think this passage gives us a pretty good picture of what it has to mean. So let's put a pin in that for a second as we move through the passage. But this idea of being filled by the Holy Spirit is actually pretty rare language in the Bible before May 23rd, A.D. 33. After that day, it becomes relatively common language in the Bible. It's a change. So let's push through here, and then we can kind of answer that question, I think, as we go. But what does seem very clear here is that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer, All 120 disciples of Jesus that are left, who stayed with him through his arrest, who stayed with him through his crucifixion, and who stayed with him through his three days in the tomb. These 120 disciples who are still gathering day by day in Jerusalem, each one of them receives the Holy Spirit. Every person who was gathered filled with the Spirit. And this is new. In John chapter 7, Jesus spoke to his disciples about the Spirit. And John clarifies it this way. John writes, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
So the Spirit was not given until after Jesus was glorified. Until after he had been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And now that all of that has happened, Jesus is freely giving the Spirit to his followers. All Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uniquely then, the disciples begin to speak in other tongues. It says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Probably asking all kinds of other questions. What is speaking in tongues? Well, I I hesitate because I I don't really like the term speaking in tongues. And the reason I don't like it is because tongues is kind of an old word. It's an old word we don't use in English very much. You meet someone from a different country, you don't ask them, what tongue is it that you speak? Right? But but we mean what language is it that you speak? And the word tongue means language. In most places in the Bible where that word appears, we translate it language. But we still like to translate it tongue when it has to do with these sort of uh, Holy Spirit um, movements. And I think that adds like a, an extra level of mysticalness to it that I don't think is helpful. They begin to speak in other languages is what Luke says. We saw that Jews are in town from all over the world for the festival. But there are also probably Jews from all over the world who simply lived in Jerusalem. Because back in that day, Jews who lived in faraway countries, whether in, in, in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, they might move to Jerusalem for their retirement. And that way they could die in Jerusalem. They could die in God's holy city. And so they'd reach a point in their lives where they really couldn't work anymore, they really couldn't provide for themselves anymore, and they would move to Jerusalem that they could say that they were going to die in God's chosen city. And so there's people from all over the world who kind of had migrated to the city of Jerusalem. And this is a multilingual crowd. And And the crowd, Luke says, is bewildered because despite their various backgrounds, Each of them is hearing the disciples speak in a different language. I know there's a lot of debate about the gift of tongues. And there are good reasons, I think, to believe that what was happening in Acts chapter 2 may have been different from, say, what Paul was describing in the book of 1 Corinthians. And and I'm not going to get into that this morning uh, because that's not Luke's point. And so if I dived into that, we're just going to wind up on a large tangent that's not what this text has to say. But what we can focus on this passage is that what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is that the disciples are speaking in known languages. Known languages that can be understood by the people who hear them without an interpreter. And that's shocking for this crowd because... They recognize these disciples as Galileans. If you wonder why, well, many of, not most, if Jesus' disciples were from Galilee, which was probably considered a little bit of a, a backwoods province in the area. And the people there, we know, had a recognizable accent. So these were kind of like the hillbillies, maybe, of first century Judea. They're the hicks. And you know, they're, they're speaking Spanish with a French accent or something. You know, it's, it's kind of obvious that these guys are from a certain region of the country. 
And yet these backwood disciples are clearly speaking in languages of the far-flung world. And the regions that the crowd mentions are places like Parthia, which is modern Iran, possibly even as far as Pakistan or India. Cyrene, which is in modern Libya. To the north and west are places like Rome, and to the south we have places like Egypt and Arabia. So it's a huge swath of territory. In Genesis chapter 10, many of you know this story. We can read about God confusing the languages of humanity because they had set their hearts against him. But now God was breaking through that barrier in order to turn hearts back to him. But notice this. I think we often get our idea in our heads that miracles are designed to demonstrate God's power and persuade unbelievers. And there's some truth to that. But notice that miracles alone do not give clear and convincing proof to those who are hard of heart. Miracles alone are not the absolute proof of God's existence. I know sometimes people say, well, what if God just came down and showed himself and proved himself? To be honest with you, people wouldn't believe. People wouldn't believe because they didn't believe this either. Some of the people were curious about what is the spiritual significance of what what I'm seeing, what does this mean? But others of them mocked the disciples. They saw something that they couldn't understand, they couldn't explain, and their response was mockery. Spirit-empowered living invites both curiosity and scorn. There is a strangeness in living for Christ that's both fascinating and contemptible to a watching world. But whether they recognize it for what it is or not, the unbelieving crowd saw that the disciples were empowered. They had power from the Spirit. Moses had ascended Mount Sinai to bless God's people with the law, but Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father to bless God's people with the Spirit. Christians have power from the Spirit. But Christians also have purpose. Beginning in verse 14, Peter answers one of the jokes that's going around in the crowd, the idea that the disciples are drunk, and Peter retorts that that's ridiculous. It's only the third hour, which is roughly 9 a.m. And Peter's basically saying that it's too early in the morning for anyone to be drunk. And, of course, if you've been around Cleveland long enough, you might say, well, I can definitely tell you that it's possible to be drunk at 9 a.m. But Peter is going to prove that he's not drunk by making a very compelling and well-organized sermon to a crowd that had gathered at the spectacle. Peter's sermon, which is arguably the first Christian sermon, has three points. He basically is going to tell them what they're seeing, why they're seeing it, and what they should do about it. Isn't this great? You get a sermon inside a sermon this morning. What what they're seeing, Peter says, is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which we read earlier this morning in Joel 2, 28 through 32. There, Joel prophesies uh, prophesies that uh, God would pour out his spirit on all sorts of people. Not just a special class of people, but all of his people. They would all prophesy. By the way, that means that this speaking in languages, this speaking in tongues, 
in Peter's mind, is a form of prophecy. Prophecy in the Bible isn't about predicting the future. I mean, it, it, sometimes it can be that, but it's a much larger category than that. This all would have meant something very important to Peter's Jewish audience. It meant that the last days were upon them. It meant that God's great day of judgment was near. You know, some people, both, both those people in the Christian world, in the church, and those outside of the church, over the centuries have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out when the last days were going to be coming. You know, whether it was some mystic uh, or whether it was some televangelist or whether it's Nostradamus. You know, there's all these guys in history who want to tell you when the end of the world is going to be. But the Christian message has a simple answer to this. We're not looking for the last days. We're in them. These are the last days. All of history is being wrapped up in what Christ is doing right now. This is the end. And it might seem long by human reckoning, but it's short in God's mind. And it is here. And so what they're seeing is the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out his spirit on all people in the last days. And Peter says, well, why are you seeing this? Why are you seeing this now? What has brought on God's last days? That's Peter's second point. And it's a point that can be summed up with one word, with one name, Jesus. Peter makes several specific points about Jesus that are essential to the Christian message. Jesus performed miracles that were a proof of his divine authority. Jesus was arrested and executed on a cross. And that was done according to God's plan. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And done by wicked men. Jesus rose from the dead. But Peter explains that Jesus couldn't have stayed dead. And his reasoning is interesting. He points at Psalm 16. Psalm 16 was written by the ancient Israelite king, King David, who was also a prophet. And in it, he seems to be speaking of himself. But then he writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So like in many of David's writings and many of his songs that are in the Old Testament, it was easy to see that he was writing about more than just himself, but about God's chosen king, the Messiah, who would come from him, who would be a descendant of his. After all, Peter says, David died. We all know where his tomb is. He's pretty dead. So instead, Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we, the apostles, first... And the disciples, secondarily, were witnesses of this fact. And Peter um, adds another point of essential Christian doctrine. He says that Jesus was exalted to heaven and pours out his spirit. Again, Peter points to scripture, this time to Psalm 110, a, another psalm written by David. And that one's interesting because it's a psalm that Jesus himself used during his earthly ministry to confound some of his opponents. And that interaction is recorded in Matthew 22, in Mark 12, in Luke chapter 20. And Jesus asked at that time rhetorically why the Jewish leaders called the Messiah the son of David. If David in Psalm 110 calls him Lord, 
It's kind of a weird thing for an ancestor to call his descendant Lord. Usually honor goes up. It goes to the older and the more revered generations. And here David is giving honor downward to this, this child who will come from his lineage and calling that child Lord. That's unusual if this is Jesus or if this is David's son. And so Jesus was kind of subtly implying to his critics that the Messiah was not merely a son of David. The Messiah couldn't be merely an earthly king. Peter uses it to show that the Messiah belonged at the right hand of the Father, a place that David never went. So these statements that Peter rattles off about Jesus almost sound like the start of a creed, don't they? We believe in Jesus, who in the flesh performed great miracles, who was betrayed into the hands of sinful men, who was crucified, who was buried, who rose from the dead, and who ascended to the right hand of the Father. That could work. Peter then concludes his message with sort of the so what. And he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, so what is there something you've got to know? There's something you've got to understand. This isn't a mere mental exercise, though. We'll see that in a second, because these facts would have been life-shattering to a first-century Jew. If Jesus was Lord and Christ, we might say Messiah, same word, he was owed all reverence. If Jesus is Lord and Christ, then he deserved all honor, respect, reverence, worship. And yet, rather than show him reverence, Peter said that they had crucified Jesus. In saying this, Peter wasn't saying that the people he saw as he looked out in the crowd were the same ones who put Jesus on trial. He wasn't saying that they were the ones who drove the nails into his hands on the cross. Maybe some of them were, but certainly not the whole crowd. Rather, what he's saying that it's that as sinful human beings, we all share the guilt of putting Jesus on the cross because he died for sins. And we understand this, those who are Christians, because we sing it. It's been part of our liturgy for centuries. We, we sing in Stuart Townsend's hymn, How Great the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Or in the words of 90s ska legend, The Supertones, my sin yelled crucify louder than the mob that day. That's for Andrew. Um, so what? Know you owe Jesus your absolute allegiance. And know that you instead killed him. I said that this sermon, though, these verses that compose the sermons have something to do with the purpose of the new people Jesus is forming. And that purpose is indicated in how Peter describes what he is doing. He said they are witnesses of these things in verse 32. On that word witnesses, we're kind of transported right back into chapter 1. 
Because in chapter 1, verse 8, you might remember Jesus telling his followers, what? That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when Peter counseled the Christians that had gathered, the 120, that they needed a replacement for Judas, he said, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The new people Jesus is making are empowered by the Spirit in order to bear witness to Jesus. One thing that non-Christians should know about this Christian movement is that we are witnesses to Jesus. That's how they should know us. And if you're not a Christian, that's how I want you to know us. Because that's our purpose. Jesus didn't pour out his Holy Spirit in order to give us our best lives. He didn't give us his Spirit in order for us to be successful in the ways the world thinks about success. He didn't give us the Spirit in order for us to be important. He poured out his Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling the difficult task of being his witness. In fact, I think if you wanted a, a quick idea, and I don't want to go too far down this road because it's more of a tangent from what the point of the passage is, but if you want a quick idea of what it means to be filled by the Spirit, it's to be empowered by God's Spirit to be His witnesses on this earth, to fulfill the purpose for which He made His people. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because it takes power to be a witness. Many of you know that. Many of you tell me how difficult it is to speak up about the good news of Jesus with your colleagues and your coworkers and your neighbors and your family members who don't believe the same as you. And this is 21st century America. Here's a report that came in this week from Voice of the Martyrs concerning Nigeria. In recent weeks, militant Fulani Muslims have attacked Villages in the Miango area of Plateau State, Nigeria, killing many and displacing thousands. As the violence escalated over the following days, the Islamists destroyed hundreds of homes and churches, as well as the villagers' crops, which were being prepared for harvest, eliminating their food source and livelihoods. The reason for the attack is simple. The Fulani want to wipe out the Christian communities, a frontline worker said. It takes power to be a witness. It is not an easy task. It is not a small purpose that Christ has built his people for. But make no mistake, the purpose of this new people is to be a witness to Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and to point people to the fact that he is owed our allegiance 
but we have failed to give it. Which brings us to our final point. We have this great scene, and honestly, this is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, where some in the crowd, after hearing Peter's message, it says, are cut to the heart. That's poetic, but we, we understand what it means, right? They're, they're moved by what Peter has said. They're convinced that what Peter said is true, and they were scandalized by their predicament. They should have honored Jesus as Lord, and instead they crucified him. Now, they understand from their Jewish faith that the last days are upon them. The days of God's judgment are near, and that's scary. That's scary. And so their question is a good one. Brothers, what shall we do? Because we know we're in a lot of trouble. And Peter's instruction is simple. Repent and be baptized. Why? Why is that Peter's instruction? If you're convinced you have wronged God, the first and proper response is repentance. Repentance, we say this regularly around here, it means changing your allegiance. It means turning your life around. It's a 180 degree U-turn. It means going from living for yourself or for the things of this world, or for things that ultimately do not have value in eternity, or from living for a false set of beliefs, and reorienting your life entirely around Jesus Christ. That's repentance. Since these individuals believe the message, that's what I take to mean by saying they're cut to the heart, they believe that what he has said is true, then the thing to do that they need to do to make good on that belief is to make a change. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. You really can't have one without the other. You cannot merely believe and be right with God because you have to have a change in allegiance. You must confess your wrongness before God and align yourself with Jesus' agenda. You must follow Jesus instead of the path you were following. Can you imagine that you got on the health line out here on the, the bus stop and, and, and you decided you needed to get to, to Cleveland Clinic or University Circle or something, and you got on the bus going toward Public Square, and you couldn't figure out why you're not seeing the clinic or, or, or the the uh, Cleveland Orchestra's location coming into, into view. And so you ask somebody, and that person says, oh, well, you need to get on the bus going the other direction. It's over there. And you go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right, you're right. It, it is that way. But I'm just going to keep going this way, see what happens. Right? It, it, it doesn't do you any good. Just because you accept that what they told you was true you need to trust what they're telling you to do. You have to change direction. That's repentance. That's maybe the difference between belief, which is kind of like intellectual assent. I agree that these things correspond to reality. And faith, which also involves trust, that because these things correspond to reality, I am going to put my trust in them and change my behaviors in light of those things. 
You must follow Jesus instead of following the path you were following. And if you don't do that, can you really be said to trust Jesus? Can you really be said to have faith in him? How do you have faith in someone if you never do what they say? If you never do what they do? And so faith and repentance are inseparable. Faith and repentance bring forgiveness. They bring right standing before God. And the proper response to forgiveness is being baptized. Baptism was an ancient rite. It's not exclusive to Christianity. There was a Jewish baptism before Jesus came on the scene. We see that in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist didn't invent it either. But it symbolically marked death. It symbolically marked death to an old way of life. When people have faith and repentance, we baptize them to mark that they have died to their old allegiances and they've chosen to live for Jesus instead. And he says that they too, this crowd also, if they become followers of Jesus, would receive the same Holy Spirit they had. Again, the Spirit is for all Christians. It's not exclusive to just a select few. He is a gift for all Christians. And so Peter encourages them. This message, this good news of hope and forgiveness for your crimes against God, for crucifying by your sins, the Lord of glory. It isn't just a promise for those who are here that day. It was promised for anyone who would hear the message and respond. And that means you. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to him. And maybe these promises are for you today. Peter urged them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what he meant was that this current system of the world, it's corrupt. It's disappearing. It's fading away. It's a wicked age in which we live. Don't we know that? And it seeks to lure you away from God, away from Jesus, and into a spiritual death. So this is not, this is not something you can just merely ponder. You can just kind of keep up here as, as head knowledge and an interesting philosophy for another day. You can't just intellectualize this. Now, I, I, say, I say that if you have questions, please ask them. And if you're wrestling with this message, please wrestle with it. But know this, the world will devour you with its cares and its concerns that are diametrically opposed to Jesus. And the time is limited. This crooked generation is dissipating. And I want so desperately to see you know the freedom and peace and forgiveness that Jesus offers you in his sacrifice on the cross. And you can become a follower of Jesus today if, if you'll simply turn your back on your old way of life to live for him. That's, again, called repentance. And then the next thing would be to baptize you. And we'd love to baptize you as a way of making your commitment to Christ public. You can make your repentance and prayer to Jesus right now by simply confessing that you have wronged him, that you want to abandon your old way. 
for his new way and and to ask him to rescue you, to save you from what you deserve. That's it, and you can do that. I pray that you would please do that. What I'm doing, I hope what I'm doing is I'm persuading you. Because that's exactly what Peter was doing here, wasn't he? Christians are a persuading people. And I know that's not a popular thing in 2021. It's not something I'm good at. It's not something I'm very comfortable at, to be honest with you. I know we're supposed to respect each other's beliefs and, and trying to see people convert is often frowned upon. But Christians are persuading people, even when the culture isn't a fan of it. We can't help it. We persuade because we know we have found life and we don't want anyone else to go without that life. Ultimately, ultimately it is the Spirit, Him who convicts men and women of their sins, not human beings. Ultimately, it is the Spirit who wakes them to new life. And ultimately, it is the Spirit who will empower them to new life. But the Spirit does His work through Jesus' new people. And we can see in Acts chapter 2 that He does it by empowering Jesus' followers to proselytize to plead with, to persuade lost souls to come home to a God who saves. If you're not a Christian, there is hope. And you can have it today. If you are a Christian, Jesus is building his new community. It's marked by power and purpose and persuasion. Do you see those things at work in your life? Because they ought to be there. And they ought to be there in increasing abundance. And if you're not seeing those, if you're not seeing those things in increasing abundance, then this is what I would challenge you to do this week, is get on your knees or sit at your desk or whatever it is you do, And spend some time with Christ in prayer, asking, God, where have I ignored you? Where have I fallen short? I know you have promised your spirit. I know not just that you have promised your spirit, but you have given me your spirit in Christ. How can I live empowered by your spirit? If you're struggling with that, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that. And I know there are plenty of people here who would love to sit down and talk with you about that. Because Jesus is building his new community, a new community we call the church. And it's an empowered community with purpose and persuasion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you. We thank you that you have called us to be your people. We here who are called by the name of Jesus Christ and that you have made us one by your spirit. And we thank you, God, that you are doing a good work in us, that you have empowered us by your spirit. And yet too often, God, we try to live by our own power and by our own strength and and 
ignore you and, and live for ourselves. And so we live in weakness. And yet, Father, on a day in which our brothers and sisters in Christ are being threatened, being harassed, perhaps even being executed in places far around the world, we confess that we have little reason to not live lives empowered by your Spirit. Forgive us for our fearfulness. Forgive us for our weakness. And Father, we pray for those who do not know you. We pray for those who have deluded themselves into thinking they know you, but have never repented, have never turned their back on their old way of life, but are living for themselves and merely uttering the name of Jesus on their lips. And we pray, Father, for those who know nothing of Jesus beyond what they've perhaps heard this morning. That they would repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And that they might receive the same promise that we have received, the gift of your spirit.